Hey, if you got a Bible, open it to 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we're going to kick off today. And uh, if you were here last week, you know that we're in the middle of a series of messages called God Wrote a Book. And today is the second of those messages. We're going to end it up next week. And I'll tell you where we're going in just a minute. But before I do that, I've got two uh, things that I want to just mention to you. Number one is that hopefully you got in your loop a little insert about the Sound Choices Pregnancy Center. They are a ministry here in Columbus that um, is a ministry to uh, young, mostly young unwed mothers that have unexpected pregnancies or unwanted pregnancies, and they are a counseling ministry, a Christian ministry, trying to persuade young ladies not to um, decide on abortion. And today, in fact... Is, has been proclaimed by President Bush the last few years. It is the National Right to Life Sunday. And so uh, we wanted to highlight Sound Choices Pregnancy Center, and we support them on a monthly basis. And uh, we would love for folks at Crosspoint that are feeling a burden for that to uh, look at that flyer and maybe consider being involved in... Um, in volunteering at Sound Choices. They always need folks, just folks answering the phones, folks counseling young ladies. Um, and I'd love for you to check out their website. They are doing a great ministry here in town. And they uh, have some really, really encouraging statistics about young ladies that they have counseled to choose life or to choose adoption. And they're doing a great, great work. And so we would love for you to check that out. We support them on a monthly basis. And, uh, and, if, and if you're wanting to get involved in a ministry in town, that would be a great, a great thing to do. Also, the second thing that I want to mention is in line with that is, I don't know if you noticed or not, but we actually elected a new president a couple months ago, and it's a relatively historic event. He's about to take office on Tuesday, and the scriptures clearly tell us that we should thank God for the authorities that have been appointed over us, and that we should pray for them. And uh, so I am, in just a moment, I want us to pray for President-elect Obama and uh, here's my heart on this as well. Uh, I've, I've mentioned this before, so it's not a shock that, um, that uh, although I am very thankful for, to God for um, authority that's been instituted over us, and I spent some time after the election talking about that Romans 8.28 is a spectacular promise to us as Christians. It says that whatever happens, happens for the good of those that love God. So uh, President-elect Obama, whether you voted for him or didn't, whether you love him or don't like him, he has, been, um, he has been put in office by God and that some good for the kingdom of God will happen through it. And here's my prayer, is that God will miraculously and spectacularly change his heart on this issue regarding his stance on abortion and that he would be a stunning influence for life. And you say, well, that's not likely. I understand that, but uh, God could do it. And so that's my prayer and that he will be a great president. And uh, that God will use him in, in, in spectacular ways for our country. And even if it goes a direction that we don't like, that God would use even those things for uh, his kingdom purpose. So that's my prayer. And uh, that's what the scripture calls us to. So let's pray for Sound Choices Pregnancy Center and uh, for, the elect, for the inauguration on Tuesday and for our nation in general. God, I pray that you would help us as we... Our Americans here in, in maybe the most volatile times of any of the lifetimes represented in this room, I pray one thing, that you would give us a dose of perspective and realize that you have been on the throne from the beginning. There's, there, you have no beginning and that you're good 
and that your gracious purpose always comes to pass. Lord, I pray specifically for Sound Choices Pregnancy Center in Columbus and those good folks that labor well in that difficult ministry. I pray that as a church we would not just have a stance against something, that, but that we would also be involved in alternatives for people that are in that situation. And so God, help us to be a church that, that loves adoption, that loves life, and that gets our hands dirty in that ministry. And bless the good folks at Sound Choices for their great work. Lord, I pray for Tuesday. I pray for President-elect Obama. I thank you for him. And I ask God that you would give him and his family safety. I pray, God, that things would go well Tuesday. And I pray that his presidency would be a, a very good one for the, for the people at large in the United States. Pray, God, for our financial situation, our military in Afghanistan and Iraq, that you would give the government wisdom on how to handle that situation and that ultimately it would end quickly and well and that righteous governments would be established in both situations and that maybe a door would be opened for the gospel in Iraq and Afghanistan. Lord, I pray for President Bush as he exits office, office that you would encourage him that you would bless him, that he would sense the gratefulness of a nation, even as he is in many quarters of our nation despised. I do thank you for what I believe to be a good man. I pray that you'd encourage him and his family. And God, I pray that however you align events in the coming weeks, months, and years, that you would do it all for your glory, and that we as a church would be ready and poised not to be self-absorbed, but to be able to offer a hope for a world that is nervous and anxious. And so settle us down and let us have great hope and trust in your great faithfulness. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One other thing that I want to mention to you is that um, this summer we have a family here at Crosspoint, Frank and Elaine Sochet. And Frank and Elaine, if you, where are you? Right there in the middle. Frank and Elaine are organizing a missions trip to China, and it's a smaller trip. They um, are, are taking a group of people that are going to go help teach English to um, some elementary age Chinese children. It's a camp run by a ministry called Pioneers, which is a great Christian ministry. And Frank and Elaine um, are going to be leading a trip. It's at the end of July through the beginning of August. It's about a week. But the travel time, you really need to block off about two weeks. And so the lim- space is limited. They're trip is about 10 to 15 folks, and I think they've already got five or six from their family signed up. They've got a big family, and so if you're interested in that, they could maybe use five to ten folks, and there is a little flyer on the back table that has some information about it, and if you're interested, I want you to talk to Frank and Elaine quickly because their missionary sponsor in China needs to have a pretty firm number of those interested here in the next uh, week or so. So talk to Frank and Elaine, and if you're interested in going to China and helping uh, teach English and having a kind of a door for the gospel there, that would be, that would be really great. So, um, well, let's get into it. Second Timothy chapter, uh, Second Timothy chapter 3 is where we're going to start off today. As I mentioned last week, all of the messages that I preach here, I, I kind of think on two tracks. I am thinking that I want to be, oh, let me mention this before I forget it. Um, uh, Arabella is on the DL today. That's my three-year-old girl. She uh, woke up this morning. Um, uh, throwing up, 
and she was about as white as the bed sheet. And, well, actually, that's not true because she has Air, uh, Dora bed sheets, and so her bed sheets aren't, aren't white. But she is sick, and so Jennifer is not um, sitting over there. She's kind of, Jennifer, my wife, is kind of like my security blanket, and so Bob Weathers is where Jennifer's usually sitting. <laughs> so you're going to have to do. So if I just come, you know, hug you or something, you know, just hold me. Um, but anyway, Jennifer's, uh, Jennifer's not here. She's a little bit cuter than you are, I've got to tell you, too, Bob. Um, so she's not here. But um, in all of my messages, I like to... Uh, I think kind of on two tracks. I want to be informational. I want to bring the truth of Scripture, but I also want to be inspirational and inspire us in this world to live for God and and to consider who Christ is. Paul alluded to it earlier. Our goal here is not to just do a couple songs, you know, open up a, 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 the book and preach and then just kind of get out. We want to engage God. We we believe that He is real and that He created us and He's here. He's not just transcendent above the heavens, but He is also imminent he's here now he's with us and he desires fellowship and worship from his created and so it's important that you know that every sunday our whole focus is just getting a group of people that would show up in the schoolhouse just to engage god to look into the eyes of god and and be caught up in his love and his power and his his beauty and then let that propel us into living a life of worship for him so generally, I like to you know, kind of be really inspirational and motivational along those lines. This particular message, like last week, uh, it's a little bit more informational because I want to encourage us as people to make the Bible absolutely central in our lives. If you don't know this, the Bible is under attack. It's always been under attack. It's, it's God's word. And in fact, in Genesis chapter 3, the word of God was the first thing that was attacked by the enemy. You remember in the story of the fall in the garden, the serpent, the devil in the form of the serpent comes to Eve. And the first words out of his mouth are, did God really say that? And it brings doubt. And in our age, even in what seem to be Christian church circles, people are starting to doubt whether or not the Bible really is true. There's this thought, well, it's kind of, you know, it's good. It's a good collection of wisdom, but it's not truly God's word. Well, last week we went through a really long message and I'm not going to keep you here for that long. Hopefully today, although I could be a liar. So don't, don't, don't pay attention to that. But if you didn't get last week, we went through a lot of the kind of the hard and fast archaeological evidence as to why we can be confident in the Bible as a historical document. And today I'm going to talk a little bit about the composition of the Bible and then we're going to switch gears into what the Bible is good for in our lives. And my goal, the first part of the message is more to inform you and the second part is to inspire you that the Bible would be central in our lives. Here's my burden and here's my, here's my heart for us. There's this huge church in the Chicago area, and it's a great church. It's one of the largest churches in America. In fact, I think it at one point was the largest church in America. 20 or 30,000 people go to this church. If I mentioned the name of it, you would all probably, if you got any church in you, you would, you would realize, you know, yeah, I know who that, that group is. And, and this is, by the way, they're a great ministry. They do a great job. They've been going for about 20 or 30 years now. And they just did a very brave thing uh, about a year ago. They did a self-analysis of their ministry over these past couple decades of all these thousands of people that come to their church. And they wanted to see how the people in their church really understood the Bible, how, how they were in growing and how they were in the actual fundamentals of the faith. And see, this was a huge church 
with all the bells and whistles, everything that you know you have, programs, all very, very consumer friendly, user friendly stuff, and major people coming, super talented pastor, super, super slick um, stuff. Not to say that any of that is bad, but they did this internal study, and here's what they came up with, and they very bravely, to their credit, reported to like all of Christendom, just said, hey, we realize that by and large we have failed in actually making disciples of Jesus. We've, we've done a great job at attracting a crowd, but we have failed at the fundamentals of building people's faith and personal faith in Christ. And, and what they said was, if we could go back 20 years, we would put a lot more emphasis on encouraging people to read the Bible for themselves. And, of course, in the blogosphere, everybody criticized them. And I was like, thank you for your honesty. And so today I'm going to take a little bit of a step out and, like we did last week, not preach so much from the Scriptures but about the Scriptures, and then we're going to end with um, an encouragement. So 2 Timothy chapter 3 in verse 14 is where we're going to start off. This is like our base verse for this, uh, for this series about how God wrote a book. And we're going to talk about the composition of the Bible. Then we're going to talk about what the Bible is good for. We're going to wrap it up and respond to God. And next week, I'm going to talk about the central message of the Bible, which is Jesus. And I'm going to preach from Genesis all the way through Revelation. So um, pack a lunch. All right. No, just kidding. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. And this is the Apostle Paul, who's the author of a good bit of the New Testament, writing to a young pastor named Timothy about the Scriptures. And he says this. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul clearly says here that these sacred writings, this scripture makes you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 16, all Scripture, every every little word, every little part of it, not just the major sections, not just the things that we uh, are, are more familiar with, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us um, understand well and help me preach well. Lord, I thank you for uh, the great privilege of opening your book. I know there are Christians in this world who live in countries and under governments that are hostile to the gospel, and they are probably in, a, in an underground church right now, and they don't have the scriptures, and we just have such freedom, and I'm so thankful for that. God, would you help us to hear well? Would you help us, even though this may be seemingly more of a lecture about information, would it encourage us? And then, God, about halfway through, God, would you open up our hearts to really be motivated to make the Bible central in our lives? God, I know that if we could unpack the suitcase of everybody in this room, there would be people who do not feel like they can understand, don't feel like they're qualified. In fact, they're, they're pretty nervous just about being in a room with a bunch of other people who call themselves Christians. And I know that feeling. I have been there. I pray, God, that you would, that you would somehow break through 
each of our insecurities or each of our pride and that you would that you would clearly by your spirit communicate to us today and that as we leave this place today we would say god is moving on my heart to know him better every person in this room God, I pray for the Christians that they would be encouraged, and I pray for those that are here today that may not know you as their Lord. I pray that they would be compelled to receive you as King and Savior. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's the first question that I want to uh, answer for us today is, how did the Bible come to be? Uh, there's, I think, uh, most people, even if they're familiar with the Scriptures, don't understand how the Bible actually came to be. The Bible, if you are somewhat familiar with it, you realize that it is divided up into, into two testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you don't have to read the Bible for very long to realize that there's a little bit of a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? In the Old Testament, God is, God is bringing the heat on people, at least it seems like that. And then in the New Testament, you've got God showing up in the flesh, eating with tax collectors and prostitutes. And so you, you do at some point have to kind of you have to engage the difference in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the Old Testament really gets kind of a bad rap because the Old Testament is the story of God's gracious pursuit of this people that he has formed called the nation of Israel. And he is amazingly long-suffering, amazingly patient with these people. But you have to realize when you read the Old Testament that God is not just merciful, but he's also just. And so the Old Testament, think of it this way, because sometimes we think, why are these two things in the same Bible together? It just seems like a totally different God. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament, think of it this way, is a promise made. The whole Bible has one storyline, and that storyline is the redemption that is found in the person and the work of Christ. So it's not like the Old Testament is a standalone document of how God deals with Israel, and then all of a sudden in Matthew, Jesus shows up. In the Old Testament, like we mentioned last week, there are over 300 prophecies just about Jesus, and that is the theme of the Old Testament, that there is this Savior coming, there's this one coming through whom redemption will happen. So think of it this way. The Old Testament is a promise made, and the New Testament is a promise fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But the Old Testament is, is comprised mainly of God's dealing with the nation of Israel. And, and um, if you're reading in the Bible reading plan that we kicked off at the beginning of this year, you're probably reading through Genesis and um, if you haven't read through Genesis and you're wondering if um, Genesis sounds a lot like a Springer episode, uh, Jerry Springer show, you're right, it does, because it is amazing the stuff that happens in Genesis. The Bible starts off with Adam and Eve, they fall, and then, um, and then God banishes them from the garden, they begin to have children, they populate the earth, wickedness begins to spread, and in Genesis chapter 6, God starts over with one man named Noah and his family, and, of course, we know the story of the flood. And Noah, after the time of the flood, gets off the boat and within probably just a couple weeks gets drunk and just totally messes it up again. And so sin begins to spread. And then in Genesis chapter 11 and 12, God calls a man named Abraham. And Abraham is the father. You know the story. I mean, you know the song, right? If you've got any church in you, Father Abraham had many sons. 
many sons had father Abraham. You guys got it? Come on. And I am one of them. (laughs) So are you? Yeah, yeah, we got it. So Abraham becomes the father of this group of people that God is forming, this nation called that later on will be called Israel, and at this point they're just called Hebrew people. And so then the rest of Genesis, Genesis 12, through the end of Genesis, is just a, 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 a record of God's dealing with Abraham and his descendants. Abraham then has a son named Isaac, and that's a really beautiful story in Genesis chapter 2. Um, I don't have time to get into that. And then Isaac has a son named Jacob. And then Jake, and by the way, from Isaac to Jacob, there's all sorts of chicanery and debauchery and really encouraging stuff because um, there is these men who are giants of the faith. Abraham, by the way, is the guy that God spoke to. And on two different occasions, Abraham's wandering through the Holy Lands trying to get to this place where God called him to, comes up against a potential enemy. And because he had a good looking wife named Sarah, he says, look, homegirl, I love you. But if this Egyptian king takes me, I am saying you are my sister. So let's just go along with it. <laughs> What a wimp. But anyway, he's the type of guy. So, so I say that to say, if you're just a little bit nervous as a, as a guy and just wondering whether you have father Abraham had many sons selling out his girl. Anyway, I just, I'm just so encouraged by that. I've never done that to my wife. I've never like gone to a, a restaurant, come outside and there's like bikers out there. And, uh, Jennifer, they're trying to take you. Tell them that you're my son. I mean, just think about that. That's terrible. Don't tell her I said that. She's not here. If we could edit that out of the podcast, that would be a whole lot better for me. The point is, is that God works through fearful, scared, messed up, sinful people like us. And so he works through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob has these sons. One of them's name is Joseph. And in Genesis chapter 37, we begin this incredible story about how these sons sell this little brother Joseph into slavery. And then through an amazing series of events, he becomes the prince of Egypt. And then he is in a position of authority so that when his family, Jacob and his brothers, his father and his brothers, are in the, experiencing this famine and about to starve and then have to sojourn or travel to Egypt. Now Joseph is in a place where he can say, you can now eat the wheat that I have stored up for you. And he now becomes a reconciling, saving figure for his own family, which is a mind-blowing story because it's an amazing truth of how God can take evil The jealous brothers who sell their brother into slavery and leave him for dead and turn it around for his glory and his good to save many people. And that's how Genesis ends with Joseph being in this in this position of authority in Egypt, blessing his backstabbing brothers and saving his people from starvation because of his position in Egypt. And so then. Genesis ends, and that's where we pick up an exodus, and Moses then, several generations later, becomes that what happened is God's people were in, in Egypt, and they went from being friends to now being slaves, and now God raises up a man named Moses, and he rescues his people from Egyptian slavery and takes them across the Red Sea. And it's at this point that God, through the man called Moses, tells him to write a book. And then the rest of the Old Testament is a storyline of God's dealing with his people 
taking them into this promised land that he promised Abraham, bringing them into this place called the Canaan land. And that is the rest of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we can kind of think to get your head around so that when you open up your Bible and you read in, in Isaiah or you read in, in Daniel, like where are we in this plan, in this redemptive story? Let's throw that, that, uh, that chart we have up on the table, or the one, two, three, four, the Old Testament part. You got it in your notes, if you can throw it up there. And um, the, the Old Testament is divided into four different types of books. The Pentateuch, which means the first five books. That's a, a, a Latin word that means the first five books of the Old Testament. That's also called the Law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's written by Moses. Now, this is really amazing because if you, if you notice, Moses arrives on the scene in Exodus and God speaks to him, tells him to write a book and tells him about, gives him the wisdom to write about stuff that had happened hundreds of years before, maybe even a thousand years before with the beginning of all things with Adam. How did that happen? Because you may be a little bit of a skeptic and you're saying, Moses just made this stuff up. Well, you have to realize how important oral history is in the Jewish culture, they would tell the story and then the story would get passed down from generation to generation. I mean, we don't know. I know my great grandfather's name. And if it didn't happen before 1920 in my family, I have the faintest idea what happened. In fact, there were, actually, I do know that I had a great great uncle who was the communist mayor of an Italian city. And his name was Crescenzo Evangelista, which is just the coolest name in the world. But I didn't want to name my kid that because he was communist. And I had a problem with that. But anyway, that's about as far back as I go, about a hundred years. And in this situation, the Jewish people are, are telling the story from generation to generation. And so Moses is aware of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob just through the oral tradition. And then God tells him to write this book. And through the knowledge that he has as a young Hebrew boy growing up of the story of beginnings, he writes this book, he writes the law, and that's what we now have as the Pentateuch, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then the rest of the New Testament, the history of the rest of the New Testament, which is about 2,000 years, is recorded in the historical books. It begins with Joshua. You know, Moses dies and then Joshua takes over and crosses the Jordan. I'm sorry, the Jordan River. And then they get to the Canaan land. And then the rest of the Old Testament The history of the Old Testament is contained in the historical books. Joshua is the leader that finally gets the people into the to the promised land. And then they go through this period where they have judges. And then there's a couple stories, Ruth and Esther, two in particular. But then kings begun begun, uh, uh, take charge and they ask for a king and God gives them a king in Saul and then he fails and then he raises up David and then Solomon. And so that's first and second Samuel and then first and second Kings. It's a story of all the somewhat rebellious and wicked and some of them righteous kings of Israel. First and second chronicles is a lot of the same story. And then Ezra and Nehemiah take us up to the point of 400 years before Christ, which is where the Old Testament goes silent. And so the history of God's people is contained in those historical books. And so when you're reading and you're reading the first five books of the Old Testament, you know that this is the beginning, 
This is God forming his people. And then this is God's law, his written law to his people, which was never intended to be the salvation. It was just intended to point people towards this promise that was made because the law never, God knew from the beginning that the law would never work. But that it was, it was given to us, as Galatians says, as a teacher to bring us to a point of failure to where we would receive the only Savior that truly saves, which is Jesus. And so the Pentateuch is the law, the historical books take us, and then God gives his people, he gives them wisdom books like Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And then because God is so rich and because he loves us, he gives us the Song of Solomon, which is an analogy of his love for his people, but which also is a love book for a husband and a wife. And this is not my issue, and I probably shouldn't mention this because this is all that you will remember from this sermon, but gone are the day. I mean, Christianity is not you know, no fun. God has called us into a rich marital relationship where the relationship between a man and a wife should be rich and beautiful and vibrant and full of lovemaking. But I don't have time to unpack that for you boys and girls. But, but, but the point is, is that Christianity releases you for the ultimate pleasure rather than locking you down for robbing you from the pleasure. No, no, marital love is Far better than anything else outside of it. That's all I got to say on that. Okay. So, yeah, thank you very much. I needed that. And he gives them a hymnal because he wants his people to worship. And so he writes psalms so his people won't just be wrote. God said this. He wants relationship. He wants people to sing to him. He wants he wants men who are warriors to also be poets so that they would have this love relationship with God so that we would be intimate and that we would express our love to him. He's not dry and rigid. He is incredibly beautiful in his pursuit of fellowship with us. And so he gives his people wisdom and poetic books. And then the rest of the Old Testament is made up of prophets. And prophets were like the preachers that would call a rebellious nation back to him. And each one of these prophets, Isaiah through Malachi, all correspond with some point along the history of the historical books. So, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi are all, all at some point fit within the chronology of the historical books. And so they're not just some book out there. The, the Old Testament is a history of God's people that can be found in the historical books. And then the prophets correspond to calling God's people along the way to come back to him. And that's how we get the Old Testament. And there is no dispute. We have 39 books that comprise the Old Testament written by about 30 different men. And there is no dispute, even amongst people that are not biblical scholars, even amongst people that are not Jewish or that are not Christian, there is no dispute about those 39 books because the nation of Israel was such a tight-knit community that these 39 books became just their history as a people. And so by the time that Jesus walked the earth, this Old Testament 
Now, the Jews would classify them a little bit differently, and they wouldn't put... They wouldn't call it First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and they would take some of the minor prophets and put them together in one book. But by the time of Jesus, the Old Testament was in the form than it is in today. And so that's how you that's how we got the Old Testament. It was God's record of his dealings with his people and their written history of it. Now, isn't it amazing? Think about this. That God wants to communicate with his people so much that he knows that they would need a record, a written history of it. And he tells Moses to write a book. And then he tells his prophets to write it down. And that's how we got the Old Testament. A weak spot in modern day Christianity is our understanding of the Old Testament. So I want you to approach the Old Testament with a bit of background knowledge and a bit of confidence to know that that's where all of this fits in. So I want you to think in terms of the Pentateuch being the first five books as the beginning and the law and then the historical books. And that tells the record of the history all the way up to the silent years, 400 years before Christ. And then the prophets fit in along the way with those historical books. So that is the Old Testament. How do we get the New Testament? And this is, this is a little bit more exciting because it's, it's more, uh, a little bit more difficult to wrap your mind around. And, and, and it is a little bit more disputed. The New Testament is made up of 27 books. Of course, the first four books of the... Uh, New Testament are the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we've got this uh, chart on your, on, your, uh, on your notes as well. But what was very, 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 very important in the New Testament was this notion of the authority of an apostle. And an apostle was one of the 12 disciples of Christ plus a couple others, and all of them witnessed. They were with Jesus on earth when he was ministering for his 33 years, and they also witnessed his resurrection. And God used these men to write the Bible. And this is very, very important because there are 27 books in the, in the New Testament, but there were hundreds and hundreds of things written about Jesus, written about his disciples. And so the church was in this dilemma of what do we put in the Bible? And so the church began to only give authority to letters or books that were written by an apostle. And when I say apostle, I'm talking about capital A apostle. What's the difference between an apostle and a disciple? All of us are Disciples. It means we're followers of Christ if you're a Christian. But an apostle is a little bit of a different designation. It is one of the men who were with Jesus during his ministry and who witnessed his resurrection. So if you've got some cat on TBN and he's calling himself an apostle, easy killer. You know, the apostles, the apostles were with Jesus, witnessed his resurrection, and they have all died. Okay? Now, the New Testament does refer to a gift of apostleship, which is the gift of starting new ministries. But um, be wary of people who call themselves apostles. That's all I'm saying. It's like, yeah, Peter, James, and John, not, not you, home slice. Anyway, so an apostle is one of the men who was with Jesus in his earthly life and witnessed his resurrection, and they were a firsthand source. And so what became very important for the church in the first century so that they could know what they should recognize as the writings, the holy writings that God has given them, was whether or not this particular letter had the authority of an apostle behind it. And so 
All of the books of the New Testament have that authority. Matthew is written by the disciple, the apostle Matthew, is one of the original 12. Mark is, is written by Mark. Now, Mark was not one of the original 12, but he was a witness to the resurrection, and he was a close associate of the apostle Peter. So, Mark's gospel is Peter's rendition of events handed down to Mark, and so we can accept Mark because Peter was the source there. Luke, the same way. Luke was not one of the twelve apostles, and he, but he did witness the resurrection, and he is the authority that he has is the apostle Paul, who, by the way, was not one of Jesus's followers during Jesus's life. Was certainly lived in the area and, and knew of him, but was actually antagonistic to Christianity. And hopefully, you know the story of Acts chapter nine, how Jesus comes back down from heaven after the resurrection and the ascension. And beats up Paul, knocks him off of a horse, appears to him and says, you will now serve me. And Paul says, yes, sir, three bags full. It didn't actually happen like that. That's a paraphrase. But the point is, is that because of his face to face encounter with Jesus, even after Jesus had ascended, Paul claims rightfully so apostolic authority. And he is an apostle. And so his ministry associate, Luke, writes Luke. And then John, of course, is one of the original 12. He writes John. And then Luke writes the book of Acts. And then a vast majority of the New Testament, the letter to the Romans, which is one of Paul's letters. I should have included it in that. And and all of the letters in, in the New Testament that were written by Paul, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, are all written by Paul and carry with it Paul's authority. And that's why those letters are in the Bible. It's not just, oh, this really sounds good, so let's just put it in here. It is because it was written by an apostle who had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus, and so they can accept it as God's Word. Because there was a whole bunch of other stuff being written about Jesus at the time. There were these other Gospels. And they would be kind of mostly right, but then they would have these weird stories. There's this one, the Gospel of Thomas, I think it is, that has some stories about Jesus as a child, where like Jesus as a child would get mad at some kid and, and like, you know, stick his finger in some, and, and cause it to turn to blood and cause kids to die. And we're like, whoa, what's going on? And it's this fable and legend and it's not true. And so the church recognized that this Gospel of Thomas or this Gospel of Judas might be kind of true, but it doesn't carry with it the authority that these men carried with them. Just imagine this. Like, I've got people that are close to me, right? Um, and, if, and if you were wondering, like, what I said uh, on a service, maybe last Sunday, and, 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 like, Reynolds was here, and Reynolds is close to me, and we spend a lot of time together, he would be a good source for what I said. But somebody who's just kind of in and out and sort of familiar, and they hear from somebody, and then they hear from somebody else, and then they, it's kind of like one big game of telephone. And then it's like, yeah, man, I hear that they do some crazy, I mean, they were, they had snakes and stuff. And, you know, it was just, I mean, it'd be like, and so somebody's writing it down, and that becomes like the record of what's going on. And, and the, the, the authority is diluted because it was not a firm source. But all of the sources of the New Testament are firm sources because they're men who were directly connected to Jesus. And then it goes on, Hebrews, we're not certain who the author of Hebrews is. Many people think it is Paul. And this is one of the Bible, uh, books in the Bible that was not, that the, the, the New Testament church struggled with to accept whether or not this should be in their Bible. And eventually they decided it was. 
because of two reasons. Number one, because they felt like it was either Paul or one of his associates, although it's an anonymous letter, and also because of the majesty and just the grandeur of the message of Hebrews. It just began over time to be accepted. James is Jesus' half-brother, and First and Second Peter, written by the Apostle Peter, First, Second, Third John, written by John Jude, is also written by um, Jesus' half-brother. And interestingly enough, James and Jude were Jesus' half-brothers, meaning that Joseph and Mary had these children after um, Jesus. And it's a half-brother because, you know, they shared Mary as their mother, but Joseph wasn't the biological father of Jesus. And it's kind of interesting. This is kind of, you know, like your, your, the brother relationship. Jesus is their, their big brother. He's their half-brother. And they didn't really become believers until after the resurrection. So, I mean, think like your big brothers healing people, walking on water, feeding 5,000, and you don't believe until after. So all I'm saying is, is if you struggle with Christ, that's okay. It took post-resurrection for his brothers to believe in him. And maybe there's a little brother thing, because if my big brother walked around saying he was the Messiah, that would be tough on me too. I'm like, you, man, you used to give me noogies all the time. But anyway, um, so those are Jesus' brother. And then Revelation is written by John. And so all of the 27 books of the New Testament carry with them the apostolic authority. And now... Is, is really in vogue now on the Discovery Channel, on the History Channel, to say, well, what about this Gospel of Judas? Or what about this Gospel of Thomas? Or what about this Gospel of, of Peter? Who, who it was, what it was, it was written by people who were not closely associated with the apostles, who then tagged their name on it. And early on, early on, in the first few decades, as these letters were being written, it was never, never recognized by the church that these were actual books of the New Testament. So I say all that to say this, and I hope I haven't bored you, because now we're going to transition into three things that the Bible is good for, is that you can be certain, Christian, you can be certain that what we have today is God's Word to us. And you cannot be scared that when you see some Fox News special report about some new gospel that's been found or, or oh my gosh, we found this. What, what if, what if we found some let now? Is this part of the Bible? No. We can be very, very, very confident that what we have in our hands is the Old Testament, which is a record of God's dealing with His people the Jewish nation, and then the New Testament, which is God's promise fulfilled in the person and the work of Christ, as testified by these men who saw and heard and knew and witnessed his resurrection. And the point is, is that God speaks. God speaks. That these are first-hand witnesses to the most important event in the world. God speaks. So I say all that to say, that if the creator of the universe has used first-hand accounts to describe his relationship with his people and his word to his people, it should be central to our lives. Final question, and then we're going to end on this. What is the Bible good for? What does the Bible do? First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. The first thing that the Bible does is the Bible, the Bible saves us. Listen to this, 1 Peter chapter 1, 
verse 23, it says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. We, if you are a Christian here today, you are a Christian not because you lived a life of rebellion and then some bad things happened and you decided at some point along the way that you needed to kind of get your life together so you needed to start going to church. If you are truly a Christian, what happened in your life is at some point, whether through the testimony of another person or whether through reading the Bible or whether hearing a sermon preached or hearing some truth from the Scriptures, the Word of God hit your heart and through that word, not through good thoughts, not through morality, not through human effort, not through a desire to just start living better, not through any merit here on earth, but through the word, which is the story of Christ on the cross, crucified and risen, that hits you and you through faith in that became a new creation. You cannot become a Christian. You cannot be rescued from sin apart from that knowledge. That's why the Bible is incredibly important. That's why we preach from it. That's why we open it every Sunday. That's why we should read it. That's why we don't talk about here at Crosspoint seven ways to have a happy Tuesday. We talk about the scriptures and the truth and the gospel and Christ and him risen and him who comes to restore and redeem every aspect of our life. If you are a Christian, you are a Christian not because you live in a Western society that has figured out how to have an ethic. You're a Christian because of the message of this book that hits an unbelieving, sinful heart and changes it and makes it new. The word is powerful. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 that I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Have confidence in the word. If you have an unbelieving loved one, don't just wish him into the kingdom. Pray the word over him. Talk to him about the Bible. Preach the word to him in a relevant, compassionate way and have confidence that the word saves people when they hear the truth of the glory of the risen Christ. The word does that. It saves us. Not good thoughts, not, not, not padded seats, not seven steps to this, not, not charismatic preachers, not comfortable environments, not good songs. The word about the Christ who has risen is what saves us. It saves us. Secondly, secondly, it transforms us in. This is the story of my life because I became a Christian about 7.30 p.m. on March 16th, 1989, when I was a senior in high school and in a gym in my hometown of El Centro, California, although... I had grown up in a church all my life. I had never heard the word. This dude in a robe would get up and he would just start reading stuff. And maybe there was allusions to the Bible, but he never, he never preached the word. And I grew up in a church in America. And yes, California is part of America. I grew up in a church in America and I never heard the word. And then on March 16th, 1989, as a punk senior kid in high school, 
through the invitation of my brother, who was a Christian, had went away to college and become a Christian, who was here last week, invited me to a crusade where a man named Ernie Shavers, who was a former heavyweight champion of the world, preached. And Ernie Shavers, I think even in his best moment, was not the most articulate guy in the world. Plus, he had spent 30 years getting hit in the head by men like Muhammad Ali. And so his English was poor. But Ernie Shavers preached the gospel out of Romans and he said about Romans 3.23 that you are a sinner and that you have, everyone has sinned. And he said that the consequences of my sin, Romans 5, was death and that the wages that I should deserve would be death. But that while I was a sinner, God sent Christ for me. And then in Romans 10, which is the word, he said that if you will confess and believe Christ, You will be saved. It was the first time I'd heard it. And you know what happened? It miraculously and supernaturally hit my soul. And I was a little kid who thought he was a Christian, who wasn't a Christian, who in that moment was saved as I responded to that. And then began this process of transformation in my life. Because at that moment I was a Christian. I was caught up in deep, dark, and desperate sin. Deep. Deep sin that could have, were it not for the grace of God, could have shipwrecked my life. Shipwrecked my life. And over the next 20 years, I have spent periods of my life being in and out of good standing with God and favor with God and walking with God. And it has corresponded directly. Listen to me. This is my plea for you. It has corresponded directly to whether or not I was reading the scripture. And this scripture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, says this most amazing thing. Put it up on the screen if you can. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And one day I read this and it, it just hit my soul. And I thanked God for his, his grace in my life. It says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, not good thoughts, not seven helpful steps, but when you receive the, the, the inspired word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is. Next slide. And then it says this, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. And when I began to expose myself to the Word of God, it worked on me. It began to transform me and it began to help me guard myself from sin. And I am, listen, I, I, I speak about this, I allude to this often, and sometimes I think I do it too much. But I'm going to do it again today anyway. And, and I want to preface all this by saying that what I'm about to say is not an indicator at all about who my wife is and how lovely she is, but I have, my one area of struggle in my life has been sexual temptation. And if that blows you away for a pastor to say that, then this probably isn't the right church for you because we don't play any silly little games. I am not greedy. If I, if I, I get out of this church and I head down River Road to go home, and if a Wells Fargo truck was abandoned with the back doors open and little pieces of gold falling out of it, or like $100 bills floating in the air. I, that would not tempt me at all. I'd stop 911. Hey, look, Wells Fargo, wide open. Somebody come get it. I, just, I might grab 100 and put it in. I don't know. About, I, it's just, that's not my thing. I don't covet stuff. I just, I don't care. I, I you know, I don't, I don't think I'm, I don't treat people poorly. You know, I don't have a lot of pride. I mean, I got insecurities and stuff. But listen, listen, my, my life 
has, has at various times in my life, I have almost shipwrecked my life because of guilt about previous falling or just temptation. And, and the word of God, when I began to expose myself to it, began to, and I am by no means have I arrived, I still need to guard my heart, and I have men around me that help me, and that speak into my life, and pray for me, and ask me hard questions, but the word of God has helped to guard my life from sin. Psalm 119 says, how can a young man cleanse his way by hiding God's word in his heart? The word has power to transform us and to sanctify us and to make us holy to purify us because it works in us even when we're asleep i mean it just works it's supernatural it softens a heart it it, it makes you want the things of god rather than wanting the broken counterfeits it transforms us and finally it equips us second timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 we read it at the beginning, all scripture is God, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I cannot imagine. I, if you would have asked me several years ago that I would be somebody who explains the word of God to people, I would have laughed at you. The word of God equips us, but as I expose myself to it, it, it equips us to be used by God wherever you are in whatever context. And so I end with this. In just a moment, I'm just going to challenge this. Is, is the word of God central to your life? And right now, there's a temptation for me to click into three little steps on how you can make it, like, you know, do this, right? You know what I mean? And you know what that's like? It's like when you are falling in love, like when you fell in love with your spouse, you didn't need like a three little... St- I didn't go to any guy and say, there's this girl that I am attracted to. What, what should I... Give me seven steps on how to do... I was just like, oh, oh my gosh. I mean, I saw her the first time and I was like, Oh, that red hair, gosh, that drives me crazy. And then I I didn't need anybody to tell me how to do it. I began to position myself. It was at Evangel Temple. She grew up here. I was a young lieutenant with no hair and one big eyebrow stationed at Fort Benning at, at, at Evangel Temple, the church that she grew up in. And I didn't need anybody to tell me how to do it. I didn't need a five minute devotional. I just, I positioned myself so that when she, I could see, so I just, I just started to do stuff because there was this thing in me where I just wanted to love her. I wanted to, I wanted to know her. I wanted to meet her. I know it sounds like I was a freak stalker, but I was just, I was just attracted to her and there was just some thing in me that I just, yes, and then, and then I got to know her and it was just, it was, it was awkward, but it was beautifully natural all at the same time. We all know what it is to fall in love. And we don't really need an explanation to just the power of that, of that thing in us propels us to initiate relationship. And so I could give it three little steps and I could do it like a, a combination lock, you know, five minutes in the morning with God and seven after lunch and three in the evening. And it's, you know what it does is it tricks us into thinking that if we'll just do these little steps, it's like five, seven, three, ah, there you are, Jesus in a box. And that works for about three weeks. And then we just go do our stuff. I just... Are you, are you in love with God's word? Has, has it captured your heart? 
You just want to know it better. And if you do, and if you then do whatever it takes to position yourself. Get up 30 minutes earlier in the morning. Have it with you. Bring it to church. Write in it. Do whatever you've got to do. I'm not going to tell you how to fall in love with God in His Word. I'm just going to ask you if you are. And I'm going to say in the next few minutes, if you aren't, then right now just say, God, help me, help me, help me, help me. Respond to the beauty of the universe. And help me to get to know you through your word. Guys, come on back. Let's bow our heads. The Lord, thank you. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the Bible. And God, I do not mean to come across to these people as some guy who knows it all by any stretch of the imagination. There have been times where I have actually been a minister on staff at a church and have gone long periods of time without really engaging your word. But I, I just, somewhere along the way, you did something in me and you made it, you made it vital to me. You made it important to me. You made me, you made me long for your love letter to the human race and and it did something in me god it did something in me and i i just love these people and i just i want to i want it to happen to my brothers and sisters too if it hasn't happened yet and so god i'm not going to try and orchestrate it or fill in too many blanks i'm just going to ask you to move in our hearts in such a way that we would long for the bible that we would make it central, that the young man in here that may be right smack dab in the middle of some of the very same struggles that I was in 10 years ago or so, that you would that you would just give him hope and that you would draw him to your magnificent word and that it would be, as Jesus says in John 8, 31 and 32, it would be the truth that sets him free. And whatever, whatever issue is in anybody else's life. God, I pray that it would do that as well. So God, would you challenge us? And if the Bible is not preeminent, if it's not central, if it's not if it's not absolutely vital in our lives, God, would you just do what only you can do? Would you speak to each one of your children in this room in the uniqueness of how you made them? Would you be the great communicator? And would you would you do something in our hearts so that we would be people of the book? Would you do that, God? Would you grab a hold of our hearts and would we respond to you and then would we worship? Would we just worship you? And I pray this in, in Jesus' name. Now, in just a moment, the guys are going to um, they're gonna sing a few songs and we want to take 10 or 15 minutes to respond. Communion is available here if you want to receive communion. The bread represents the broken body of Jesus. The juice represents his spilled blood. And maybe you just need to Reconsecrate your heart to his word and towards loving Jesus, towards knowing who he is. Just come down. You can do that yourself. Pray by your own. Maybe you want to pray with somebody and for about anything, whatever. You got, a, you got a difficult day coming up on Tuesday. You need some people to surround you in prayer. Come down and pray. Maybe, maybe you're just a young guy that's foundering and you just need to commit yourself to making the Bible central in your life. And, and you need to spend about five minutes now just asking God to help you fall more in love with him do that, all of us, and whatever the case is, let's
Let's do that.